2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new books podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Victoria Wolcott, Professor of History at the University of Buffalo. She's the author of Living in the Future, Utopianism, and the Long Civil Rights Movement. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a little something about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
1: Sure, absolutely. So um, as you said, I'm a professor of 20th century US history teaching here at University at Buffalo. And my first book actually was called Remaking Respectability. And it was a study of African-American women in the great migration era in Detroit, Michigan. Um, that book led me to a second book project. Uh, what I noticed when I was researching the city of Detroit was how extensive the segregation was in terms of recreational spaces. So I wrote a book called. Race, Riots, and Roller Coasters, The Struggle Over Segregated Recreation in America um, that was published about a decade ago now. <clears throat> so that book actually led me to the current project um, that I, that was just released this spring. Because in that research for looking uh, at the struggle over recreational segregation, I kept coming across in the 1930s and 40s in particular, these very small groups of pacifists, radical pacifists, who were engaged in nonviolent direct action to desegregate these spaces, mostly in the north, outside of the south, and they were doing it much earlier than um, the sort of typical civil rights narrative that we're all familiar with. So I became really curious uh, about who these groups were, and that kind of took me down this path to this project.
2: Now, you started your book off talking about the story of Coretta Scott, and she was Coretta Scott before she was Coretta Scott King. That's right. And the book Looking Backwards, 2000 to 1887, tell us the importance of that story.
1: Sure. So Coretta Scott is somebody, and Coretta Scott King, is somebody whose life has actually been not been examined as much as I think she uh, deserves. So when she met Martin Luther King, who was a young seminary student in the city of Boston, she was actually already quite politically active and engaged, and really more so um, than Martin Luther King was at that point. So she had attended a progressive, a small progressive school called Antioch College. uh, And when she was there, she met the the renowned civil rights activist, Bayard Rustin, who some people might be familiar with, who was one of the founding members of the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. So she actually met him a couple of times. They knew each other. um, And she had also campaigned for the progressive candidate, Henry Wallace, who was a kind of left-wing candidate, uh, independent in 1948 as well. Wallace was calling for desegregation and racial equality. So when she was, you know, starting to date this young man, she was partly giving him this gift of a utopian novel, um, as a way for them to to have a dialogue uh, about some of these ideas about socialism and how to create a new and different kind of future. So Looking Backward is a very famous, uh, or was very famous in the late 19th century, utopian socialist novel that envisions a future of America with with no class division and sort of full social equality. Uh, And it was something that King responded to very positively, and they kind of went back and forth about the novel, and he talked about how he was very much agreed that uh, socialism and a a world without war would be the world that he would want to try to help create.
2: Now, tell us about the connections between utopianism and the civil rights movement.
1: So... In the book, I argue uh, that these different kinds of spaces, institutions, and groups that I look at, had a few different things in common. Uh, First of all, they talked about and and practiced and taught about uh, cooperatives. Cooperatives both in the sense of kind of cooperative brotherhood in a very broad sense, but also economic cooperatives as an alternative to uh, capitalism. They were also, most of them, very much engaged in nonviolence and nonviolent politics um, and nonviolent direct action as a resistance tactic. And these were all groups that were interracial in various ways. So these are the kind of components that uh, pull them together. What makes them utopian is that they all engage in in what um, one scholar of utopianism, Lyman Tower Sargent, calls a form of social dreaming, that utopianism is a form of social dreaming that helps you imagine. radically different world Uh, another way to think about this is what political scientists call prefigurative politics so what they're doing is that in the here and now um, they are living out the kind of world they want to actually see enacted right so they they're prefiguring uh the world that they want to see in the future um and again that's a that's a kind of common theme in utopian groups as well and this becomes very important for launching the civil rights revolution
2: Now, I always saw this term throughout your book, freedom now. Describe what does this mean, uh, especially within the the folk schools?
1: Yeah, so freedom now is is an important concept. And and what it signals is that these were not individuals who were willing to simply wait and have gradual change, the kind of gradualism that, say, racial liberals or maybe the NAACP and some other more moderate groups um, were asking for they were they were calling for the change to be immediate um, and revolutionary so they often would talk about people like uh, the pacifist AJ musty Bayard Rustin and others would talk about a nonviolent revolution so they would use that term revolution they wanted this to be an immediate shift um, in the society and they were going to engage in the various forms of political resistance to create that freedom now uh, and then in these within these communities Highlander folk school is a great example. Uh, In Tennessee, they also were, again, as I said, with prefigurative politics, they were enacting that idea, you know, in the immediate um, moment, right? They weren't going to be waiting for some sort of Civil Rights Act, which would eventually come down the road to create interracial and fully, you know, equal communities. They would actually do it in an experimental way um, in that particular historical moment.
2: Now, a warless world and a socialist future was this what dr king believed in in from your information here
1: yeah i you know, I first came across that Bellamy um, uh, uh, exchange, gift exchange with Coretta Scott um, through the historian Claiborne Carson uh, and had a bit of a, uh, of a exchange with him. He is the editor of the King Papers and really maybe the most renowned King scholar. Um, and, and he said that, that he's, there's actually a significant amount of evidence uh, that, that King was more engaged with socialist politics um, and socialism as a potential form of economic change about dealing with class inequality, than he often was, you know, saying in public. So there is a, a fair amount um, of emphasis for this, and he also really kind of is part of a line of what we call utopian socialism, which included people like Bellamy, writing in the 19th century. These are, you know, individuals and groups who want to create dramatic revolutionary change, but want to do it in a nonviolent way, right? So they they don't want to have the kind of violent, you know, uh, uh, clashes, whether it's between, you know, class conflict or racial conflict, they want to use nonviolence as a way to enact that change. And that's obviously something that that King was very much engaged with as well.
2: Interracial, interracial dating, marriage. Is this an important aspect of the utopian socialist community? You gave some really good examples. So.
1: It it definitely is, and I it's interesting. I think that interracialism has been sort of understudied and under theorized within the civil rights historiography, um, particularly you know relatively recently. Uh, so what I did in, in this project is I actually you know after spending a lot of time with this material, uh, came up with sort of three different categories of interracialism, which I think are helpful. Um, so one category is what I call labor interracialism, and this is something that you saw in the workers' education schools like Brookwood um, Labor School, Highlander Labor School, but also just in the labor movement, particularly during the 1930s uh, with the CIO, Congress of Industrial Organizations, with the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. Um, These are all things that, that I talk about, that within the labor movement, also Socialist Party and Communist Party. These were uh, interracial uh, struggles that where they put the kind of class inequality uh ahead of kind of questions of racial inequality. So that's, that's a form of labor interracialism. That's that's really important. There's a kind of liberal interracialism as well. Uh, you see this particularly in the fellowship movement, which I look at, or say the YWCA, YMCAs. So this is a little bit less strident, a little bit less Um, radical in some ways and some other forms of interracialism but these are spaces where individuals are coming together across racial lines uh, to educate and to talk about the possibility of full racial equality and then finally i have a third category which i call utopian interracialism which is a much more sort of dramatic idea um, in the case of the Father Divine movement, which I'm happy to talk more about, he himself and his followers quite literally said that that race did not exist as a category, that they didn't see race. Um, and that was very important to their politics and to their thinking uh, and how they place themselves in the world. Congress of Racial Equality, um, and then later in the 1960s, SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, these you know, very, very progressive civil rights organizations also had very sort of utopian notions about full racial equality as well. So there's sort of different variations of this, um, but it is a concept that really helps to unite all these different groups together.
2: You did go into detail about Father Divine's peace mission. What did you find there? by looking at that whole community.
1: So the Father Divine Movement is is sort of endlessly fascinating. And I think, you know, in many ways... Uh, scholars, uh, both contemporary scholars in the 1930s and beyond, as well as you know more recently, uh, were often relatively dismissive of this religious movement. Um, it's only more recently that religious studies uh, scholars have really begun to take it more seriously. So I actually came at the reason I decided to do a deep dive into the Father Divine Movement is I did run across his followers and him doing these desegregation um, protests, uh, actually in the city of Philadelphia in the 1940s when I was working on my last book. I'm like, well, that's really interesting. Nobody's really, I didn't I, mean, I knew who they were, but I didn't really realize that they were engaged in that kind of political protest. Uh, but Father Devine um, was an itinerant minister. He was born, his name when he was born was George Baker. He changes his name uh, in the 1920s. He was uh, an itinerant minister during a, a period of religious revival um, and a lot of kind of religious experimentation within the African-American community, specifically in the 1920s and 30s. So there's a number of these, what we call, or religious studies scholars call new religious movements. Um, the one that people might be most familiar with would be the Nation of Islam That's is one of these movements. Uh, More Science Temple is another one. And Father Divine's peace mission is yet another one of these sort of new urban, new religious movements. Uh, and as I mentioned before, Father Divine is somebody who did not see race, and he tried to, in any way he could, uh, to erase racial lines and you know, erase the color line, as, as they would call it in, during the 1930s. So he would actually um, set up peace mission you know, satellite communities in white neighborhoods uh, so that he could actually, through his followers, um desegregate those particular communities. And he sometimes was attacked uh, for doing that. So that was part of his both religious and his kind of political um, ideas. Uh, in terms of his sort of religious thinking, one of the things there's a number of different strands that go into his religious thinking. He's very influenced by, The Shakers, a very, you know, 18th and early 19th century religious community. And, you know, some of his teachings around kind of questions of celibacy, um, again, kind of questions of nonviolence and uh, questions of racial equality come from the Shakers. He's also influenced by a, a white religious movement, Protestant movement from the 19th century called New Thought. And in New Thought, the uh, the group that people again might be familiar with that comes out of this idea is the Christian Scientist, uh, Mayor uh, Mary Baker Eddy, for example. But in the ideas basically of new thought is that you could use it, that you would be filled with the Spirit of God, and you can use that power to heal yourself, possibly to heal others, um, that every individual, no matter their race, their gender, etc., are imbued by the Spirit of God. And that, that's very much a lot of what he was teaching. And then also he pulls strands for, from African American you know, evangelicalism as well, and brings it into his movement.
2: Now you talk about black socialists throughout your book. Can you give us some information about how they got connected with socialism?
1: Yeah, I mean this is part of the the sort of world of of the the Particularly interwar period, the 1920s and 30s, places like Harlem, places like Detroit, where you had a mass, you know, influx of African American migrants to these cities, um, and they just became really hotbeds of of politics. I mean, people are familiar certainly with the Harlem Renaissance, for example, Um, and socialism is very much part of this. Uh, This is partly also influenced by some Caribbean radicals who are migrating, you know, from particularly the the British Caribbean, places like Barbados and Jamaica and elsewhere elsewhere, into these cities as well, who have socialist ideas. Um, So, And this is also part of of a pretty vibrant labor movement. So A. A. Philip Randolph is maybe the best example of a black socialist during this period. Um, He becomes very, very prominent by the 1930s and 40s in developing his sleeping car porter union uh, and also works to advise the civil rights movement as it begins to to burgeon and and go on. The socialist party uh, in this period was run by a guy called Norman Thomas, um, white man uh, who was very interested in trying to break down uh, racial barriers and trying to do some of that labor interracialism that I talked about before. So people like the, the f- fabulous activists like Ella Baker, Pauli Murray, um, and others were followers of Norman Thomas, you know, knew him, Uh, attended his lectures, uh, and were very much engaged in this politics as well. So, you know, in particularly, I would say, the urban north and the urban west, it was sort of socialism was sort of in the water um, during this period.
2: Tell us about the Delta corporative farms in the 1930s.
1: Sure. So this, again, is part of the strand of labor interracialism and and also the cooperative movement, which is really important for the sort of history of, of utopian communities from the 19th century onward um, and becomes really a, a significant kind of solution uh, that many African-American activists and some white activists look to to try to solve some of the economic strife, particularly during the Great Depression, where there is so much suffering. So in the case of the Delta and Providence Cooperative farms. This is a a farm, Delta is the first farm, and then it expands to a second one in Mississippi. Um, And this was founded by a a white Protestant evangelical by the name of Sherwood Eddy, intellectual. Um, And Sherwood Eddy had gone to the South to investigate what was happening with all these sharecroppers who were being displaced off of plantations because of New Deal um, agricultural policy. Uh, But they weren't just being displaced, they were often, you know, being beaten, Um, they were being oppressed in, in a variety of ways because they were trying to organize unions uh, in the case of the, in the area where Eddie was working, they were creating this STFU, the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, and they were being punished for doing this. So Eddie actually gathers together a group uh, of these displaced sharecroppers, both black and white. He is able to raise money to purchase land in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta area, Sunflower County. Uh, and he creates this cooperative interracial farm, you know, in rural Mississippi in the nineteen. 1930s, which is which is pretty um, pretty remarkable in many ways, and they actually do quite well for some time. Um, The farms, both farms become a model for some of the New Deal cooperatives that were created under the Roosevelt administration. Uh, A lot of people, intellectuals and activists globally, not just within the United States, travel there to see how these farms are operating, uh, what they're doing. Um, So it becomes a kind of model for other possible sorts of experiments. Unfortunately, again, this is Mississippi, in the wake of the Brown decision in 1954, there was a massive increase in racial violence. Uh, a reaction to that decision and a realization on the part of white supremacists in Mississippi that there was going to be the possibility of Blacks regaining the power that they had lost. So Emmett Till's murder is part of this backlash and they attacked both the Delta and Cooperative Farms and basically shut them down um, as part of that backlash. But for a period, for a couple of decades, they were you know, a remarkable experimentation.
2: Tell us about those schools, the Brookwood training schools. What type of people attended there?
1: So this is part of a movement which actually before I was working on this project, um, I didn't know as much about, but I ended up finding it absolutely uh, fascinating, which is this idea of workers' education. Um, And this comes out actually of the early 20th century, and it's an idea that comes out of actually feminist labor organizers. So, the ILGWU, or the International Lady Garments Workers Union, is the most important uh, sort of labor union right, for sort of progressive women activists in this period. And what they're arguing is, is basically this sort of idea of bread and roses, that workers don't just need higher wages and fewer hours. Um, they need to be able to, you know, go to the countryside sometime, have healthy food, uh, learn about literature, learn about, you know, other parts of their world, have a, a kind of fuller sense of, of you know, being fully citizens um, of this world, right? So that's the basic idea of workers' education. It's a, it's labor organizing training, um, but the students who go to these schools not don't only learn how to form a union or how to negotiate with their bosses, they're also reading literature, they're doing plays, they're playing music. They're getting access to the outdoors and in very positive ways as well. They're really a, sort of like a respite for them. The people who attended uh, both Brookwood Labor College, um, and then later Highlander Folk School, these were basically workers, uh, working class people. Many of them were immigrants. So there was a fair number of Jewish workers who went to these schools, first generation immigrants, um, some, some white working class, native born whites as well. And then they d- didn't sort of active, actively try to recruit African-American students partly because that interracialism piece, the labor interracialism, was really important. So some very famous people uh, went to Black activists, went to these schools. Pauli Murray, the wonderful uh, lawyer um, and civil rights activist, went to Brookwood Labor College. Ella Baker went to Brookwood Labor College as well. Um, and there were others, so they're not huge numbers of people, but there are people who got this training and they go on to be very uh, influential and, and, and very, very good organizers. So Ella Baker, uh, after Brookwood, she goes on to uh, to lead up this kind of cooperative, I think it's called Young Negroes Cooperative Society, um, trying to, going around the country trying to inform uh, African-Americans, mostly in cities, how to form cooperatives, what cooperative, you know, education looks like, what these, you know, what these various businesses look like. So that's a great example of of one person's gone, having gone to Brookwood and then going on and creating this remarkable life as an activist.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
2: interracial summer school in the 1940s was absolutely amazing. Tell us about that and how Rosa Parks attended.
1: Yeah. So Highlander Folk School, which is maybe a little bit you know, more well-known than some of these other institutions, um, they are really doing amazing and courageous work uh, in the 30s and 40s and and beyond. In fact, it still exists today, I should say. Uh, So initially in the 1930s, they're really focused on labor organizing. They're doing the the STFU kind of organizing. They're working with the CIO. And so many of their sort of summer institutes and training programs were around organized labor, but they always had the ambition to have it be an interracial space and to do civil rights work. Um, So for example, Highlander is, famous for actually taking some of these older labor songs and some african-american spirituals and creating songs like we shall overcome this little light of mine and so many others that became the soundtrack of the civil rights movement right so they're doing all sorts of work like that by the by the 40s they're shifting more towards the civil rights movement partly because the labor movement is going through a kind of crisis um, that's going to only get worse uh, into the 1950s. So, Rosa Parks' experience, of what happened, uh, this is just months before the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott, where you know, which was, of course, instigated by her refusal um, to give up her seat to a white man. But she had, just months before, been at the Highlander Folk School. And she had gone there because they were Doing a, a big institute to try to deal again. This is right after after the Brown versus Board of Education decision to train people to go back to their communities um, to try to get schools desegregated, and so they were doing role playing and, and all sorts of education around this possibility. Um, of, of getting schools actually desegregated, but they were also living communally uh, for the period of the Institute. And one of the things that Rosa Parks talks about is that, that she found sort of revolutionary in her own experience is that she was being waited on by white people, right? That there was, you know, white folks who were doing the cooking and they were serving the food um, and cleaning up. <laughs> and, and she was, you know, she was being waited on by them. And, and that kind of flipping... Of, of the racial um, categorization, particularly in the South, was, was really profound to her. Um, and she definitely, because she had been feeling quite discouraged, you know, about the possibility of the movement. This was a very dark time in the mid-50s, and that really did buoy her up when she returns to Montgomery. Um, she makes that, that, you know, fateful decision, uh, which launches the, really the mass part of the movement.
2: Now, what were some of the solutions, especially solutions to poverty?
1: Yeah, so that was something that they always had, many of these folks always had on top of mind. And I've talked about cooperatives a few times. Um, That was certainly one, particularly in the South, um, particularly in, in the sort of agricultural areas, they often return again and again to try to create these cooperatives. That allow people who are impoverished, have very little, to pull whatever resources they have uh, in order, in some cases, just to survive, but also potentially to, you know, become landowners and to become – self-sufficient in many ways. And this is an old tradition within the Black community, particularly, I, I should say, in Mississippi, um, that in the post-emancipation period in the, in the 19th century, for example, there was a lot of interest in cooperatives. Um, in that period, there's a, an all-Black town in Mississippi called Mound Bayou that was founded in the 1890s by formerly enslaved uh, people who um, created cooperative businesses and created this sort of separate all-Black community that actually, for, for quite some time, really thrived. Uh, so there is this kind of tradition um, in places like Mississippi. It's not simply, you know, white philanthropists or somebody like Sherwood Eddy who kind of fly in and, and create this, right? This is also something that's been a grassroots um, economic strategy uh, for a long time. And in the case of the Father Divine movement, economically, um, creating those cooperatives that he did in cities and also in some rural areas was, for 20 years or so, really Very successful. He became one of the highest or the most important real estate um, owners in Harlem uh, during that period, and he his followers, you know, were brought out of poverty uh, because of the success of these cooperative businesses. So that's that's one set of of kind of practices. Uh, I think the other sort of very very important um, aspect of this is nonviolent and nonviolent direct action right so that these groups by the early 1940s really as early as the late 30s um, certainly by the 40s with the congress of racial equality they're actively training people in nonviolent direct action and they're and they're carrying out campaigns most of these campaigns are in the north and the midwest in the early period and eventually of course they'll be applied uh, to the south so there's a whole generation of both african american and white activists doing nonviolent direct action starting in the late 30s. So by the time you get to 1960 with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, there's a there's a legacy. Um, and there's older teachers who, and Fired Rustin is one of them, right? Who are training students and training young people. And that's what's gonna really be transformative in the 1960s.
2: You have a chapter on the fellowshippers. Tell the audience, who were they?
1: the fellowship movement is is a really fascinating um, movement. Uh, there's a number of aspects to it, but the fellowship houses are really interesting. They began in Philadelphia. There was a, a Quaker woman um, in Philadelphia who created this interracial fellowship house in the city. And so this was a place where, you know, again, blacks and whites could meet together, black people and white people could meet together. Uh, they would have They had, you know, various programs for children, Um, and it was part of a a kind of broader movement in the middle of the 20th century of interculturalism, right? That you want to everybody has to try to get along and and have intercultural um, understanding. Uh, The Fellowship House in Philadelphia is where Martin Luther King Jr. first heard about the the teachings of Gandhi. He writes about this in his first book, "Stride Toward Freedom," um, where he goes to the Fellowship House. Uh, to listen to the president of Howard University, Mordecai Johnson, who gives a lecture about Gandhi, and in his in his memoir, King talks about you know going out immediately afterwards and buying all these works on Gandhi, and that starts him on his path towards applying nonviolence uh, towards the movement. So that's just one example. Later in the movement, these fellowship houses, which start to spread around the country, so there's fellowship houses all over the place, um, dozens of them. Uh, they also become kind of training grounds for civil rights activists. So before the Freedom Ride riders in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, uh, people like John Lewis, before they went on those buses on uh, in those incredibly dangerous um, southern trip, they met at the fellowship house uh, in Washington D.C. In that case, uh, for their training. And John Lewis writes in his memoir that he'd never been to a place like that, you know, where this sort of interracial mixing with the politics, right, with the kind of creation of community, living together, eating together, it was really important for him. The other piece of this that I write about in this chapter uh, is is more about the importance of religion um, in this fellowship idea as well. And here there's a central um, individual. His name was Howard Thurman. He was extremely famous uh, during the middle of the 20th century. He's sort of, I think, less is known about him now, but he actually created, he was the first African-American uh, to meet Gandhi. So in the ni- early 1930s, he goes to India um, as part of this sort of Christian missionary trip that he does. He's a minister, uh, but and he and his wife meet Gandhi, and that's a, a very important moment. Um, and so when he comes back to the United States, he goes around the country and he lectures about Gandhi and Gandhi's work, including at fellowship houses. And then he creates what, uh, uh, what he calls the Fellowship Church of All Peoples which is a interracial church in San Francisco, where it's, it's economical and interracial. um, And, and that also becomes a sort of really important space for kind of thinking about these ideas. He became quite close with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, They spent time together in Boston when King was still there. Uh, And, you know, King would carry around Thurman's most famous book, which is called Jesus and the Dispossessed. around with him you know in these protests and so forth so he apparently had this sort of tattered copy of Howard Thurman's book with him as he travels around uh, to do his activism
2: now you talk about the pacifists specifically Wallace Nelson how was he involved in in this movement
1: Wallace Nelson and his Importantly, his wife Juanita Nelson, he sort of can't talk about Wallace without talking about Juanita, they're they're just um, a team. Um, They're a part of a really fascinating uh, movement, sort of on the radical edge of of the pacifist. Uh, And they were both members of what I think is the most important, there's various groups, but the most important one here of a group called the Peacemakers. So they were also involved in the Congress of Racial Equality. I should say that Juanita Nelson in the 1940s, I think it was 43, when she was a student at Howard University, um, she was doing sit-downs, you know, desegregating restaurants with Pauli Murray. So that was even before she met um, Wallace, so very, very early. Uh, But they become increasingly radicalized, you know, during the 1940s. Wallace Nelson as a pacifist uh, is a conscientious objector during the war uh, and spends much of the war years in prison on hunger strikes. Uh, along with Bayard Rustin and, and other male pacifists who are engaging in these hunger strikes in these protests against segregation in these prisons um, and against various forms of oppression. So the Peacemakers kind of emerges out of this. And this is a, a group, a radical pacifist group. They live in peace cells. They try to live interracially. Uh, so the Nelsons often lived with a, another couple called the Bromleys, a white couple with their children as well. Um, and they carry out, again, these nonviolent direct action campaigns around the country, really really important ones, some of which I wrote about in my previous book about, about recreation because many of them are targeting recreational um, facilities. Uh, but and Nelson, the Nelsons um, and some of these, these others are also engaging in what they call total non-cooperation. So when they're arrested, and they're arrested a lot, uh, they go completely limp, right? And they refuse to to cooperate in any sort of way uh, with the judicial system. Um, and that includes going on hunger strikes. It includes, you know, not volunteering to walk, you know, to the judges' chambers, et cetera. So he's very much part of this, of this kind of more radical pacifist um, culture. Uh, and this is during the Cold War. Uh, it was sort of, sort of remarkable. But they do some very, very important work in the civil rights uh, movement, as well as in the pacifist movement, you know, against militarization and nuclear warfare.
2: Now tell us about the journey of reconciliation and why was it important to this book
1: So the journey of reconciliation is in 1947 um, and this is again, Wallace Nelson is part of this, uh, Bayard Rustin is part of this. Um, so these are this is being carried out really by the Congress of Racial Equality, with some assistance from a few other um, organizations. Uh, and it's what they're trying to do is they're going to test out that there was had been a Supreme Court decision. Uh, that said that interstate travel had to be desegregated right that you know a state like Mississippi could still in the 1940s legally segregate their buses uh, in within the state boundaries but if you're crossing from one state to another it's supposed to be desegregated so they're testing that decision uh, in 1947 which is which is very early and the 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 journey does not last very long. It's not long before they are being, you know, beaten um, and arrested. But it was an important kind of early test case to what would be in the early '60s the Freedom Rides. The Freedom Rides are some of the most dramatic and, so- in some ways, some of the most um, successful or impactful of the major movements in, in the 1960s. So it's a kind of it's a sort of early testing of a strategy that would be become later much more successful. Um, and again, deliberately interracial. All, unfortunately, all men, they they excluded women from the journey of reconciliation uh, in the 1940s, um, but, but also brought some more publicity and support to the movement.
2: Now, what is the message you would like your readers to gain once they finish your book?
1: I think one of the things that's really important about this idea of social dreaming and the idea of utopianism, which can be sometimes dismissed as you know just being you know airy fairy up in the clouds, um, is that first of all, it gives people hope, but it also gives them a vision for the future. that if you can do that sort of social imagination, social dreaming to imagine what you want to see in the future, that that can then guide and structure the forms of activism that you engage with. So I think having that hope, having that idea of a future that's different than the one we live in now, particularly since the one we live in now is so dark um, in many ways, uh, but having that idea about envisioning a a different and better place uh, down the line and understanding that this has been done in the past uh, with great bravery, great courage um, and great imagination to create real change.
2: Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. Tell the audience what's your next project you'll be working on.
1: Well, it's actually related to what I was just talking about with the Nelsons. Um, The Nelsons had a very close friend who I wrote about a bit in my last book, whose name was Rosianna Robinson. She's a black woman uh, from Chicago. She was a very, very gifted athlete. Actually, her sisters were as well. One of, they went to the Olympics. Uh, so she was a gifted track and field athlete, but she also became a radical pacifist in the 40s and, and ended up joining uh, the Peacemakers and just lived this really remarkable life uh, where she used her athleticism to actually denounce the Cold War, uh, to denounce racism. So, it's an early form of of, an athlete using activism. So, for example, she refused to go to the Soviet Union, which the State Department wanted her to do as a kind of track and field demonstration, a goodwill tour. She's like, no, I'm not going to be any part of that. Um, You know, I I believe what you're doing is wrong. Uh, And she also engaged in in numerous, numerous civil rights protests and was imprisoned and had hunger strikes as well. So, I'm going to write a book. using her life to sort of to talk about this Cold War period and talk about these strands of activism that sometimes we don't see enough of, and also just to bring this remarkable woman to life to the extent that I possibly can.
2: Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, and we'll be looking forward to all of your projects. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. This has been fun.